Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly, and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com. My guests this week are Jesse Jacobs and Mike Kearns, co-founders of The Churning Group. During this 45-minute conversation, we discuss the firm's investment thesis, how to do M&A deals well, why they've found success with their media investments, and what has them excited going forward. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'd like to start a bit more personal and learn more about how you both found your way to not only working and investing in media, but more specifically at the Chernin Group. From a purely alphabetical perspective, let's start with you, Jesse. Sure. Um, thanks for having us on, uh, Jacob. It's uh, we're, we're big fans of you and the and the platform you've built. Uh, congratulations on the recent um, uh, addition to Morning Brew, which is exciting. So myself, um, you know, at, when I was in college, actually, uh, Fox Sports started. They got the NFL rights from CBS, which which back then was a big deal. You know, CBS, ABC, and NBC had had football rights for decades. Um, Fox got those rights, and I ended up into. I was actually, I think, like literally, you know, I, I walked in in my summer intern between my freshman and sophomore year at Fox Sports, and there was like four other people there. Um, and over the course of, you know, my entire time in college and then after college, I worked in sports TV production for Fox sports and then ultimately for CBS sports at the Olympics in Japan in 1998. Um, and I was working in sports trucks. So NFL games, baseball games, NHL games, Olympics, snowboarding, um, you know, sort of running around, uh, in sports TV production. And I, I quickly decided post-college that it seemed like the more successful you got in that career, the more you're going to have to work every holiday, right? So you'd be working Thanksgiving if you got lucky, you know, and you were good at, 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 at football production. You'd be working Christmas, you'd be working New Year's, you'd be working all holidays and all weekends. So I decided that that wasn't for me. Um, and it was the early days of digital media in sort of online streaming for video and for music. And I got a job running content in LA for a business called iFilm that most people will not remember. We were one of the first companies ever to stream video online. We technically sold the first video ad ever, and we coined the term viral video. Um, and it was basically YouTube before YouTube. So the idea is that people would send send us anything. I mean, every day we got boxes and boxes of DVDs and VHS tapes and we'd encode them. And this is a time when you had to encode them into Windows Media Player, Real Player, and QuickTime all separately and in different bit rates. Um, and it was the right idea, just probably 10 years too early. Ultimately, that business, um, we sold that business to Viacom. I was writing a book at the time and a good buddy of mine was going to business school. And I said, yeah, I'll I guess that seems like an adult thing to do. I went to business school, and from there, I ended up at Goldman Sachs doing investment banking and investing all in media, sports, uh, consumer, digital, et cetera, and um, wanted to leave Goldman at one point to do something more entrepreneurial, and and Peter uh, and I sort of found each other when he was leaving News Corp and Fox, 
and uh, he and I started the Chernick Group in in 2010. And you, Mike? I um, I started my career working with Ron Conway and um, his first fund, actually, in in the in the Silicon Valley back in uh, 1999. Um, was there? I, I say I say to people, I was there for a year of the good times and a year of the bad times. Um, you know, we we effectively were. Y Combinator before Y Combinator and the growth of all these kind of professional seed funds. Um, you know, from there I went and I joined one of the top sports agencies um, uh, in Lee Steinberg and Jeff Morad and ended up working very closely with Jeff Morad, um, who was uh, running uh, the baseball practice and did, worked a lot on um, player negotiations, which was really interesting, in particular arbitration. Um, and then ended up helping Jeff leave the agent business and, and he acquired a, a majority stake in the Arizona Diamondbacks. Learned a lot about sports and, and media rights and the kind of the confluence of the two during that. We actually came across and, and dug pretty deep into Major League Baseball, advanced media. This is back in 2003. Um, then the book Moneyball was written. And it was really eye-opening, even for us who worked in sports and knew the AAs pretty well. We had no sense of how they were really um, using data to the extent they were. Um, so that that combined with Major League Baseball Advanced Media kind of spurred me on to, to co-found a, a startup that uh, was effectively based on becoming a, a stock market for, for athletes. Um, very similar to a lot of stuff what's happening around NFTs, um, ironically, at least conceptually, um, it, it didn't work for a variety of reasons. Um, but we had great investors, a, a gentleman named Kevin Compton, who had been a senior leader at Kleiner Perkins for a long time was our main investor. Um, he, he kind of doubled down on us with the rest of the board. Um, I became CEO of that company. We became a large Facebook and mobile sports application network called citizen sports. Um, that, that did pretty well. Um, we were back kind of in the, the, during the days of like sports blog nation and bleacher report and, and kind of sports startups. Um, we ended up getting acquired by Yahoo, um, which still powers Yahoo sports app. And then our team rebuilt Yahoo's fantasy sports app along with a bunch of folks from Yahoo. And then I ended up, um, running Yahoo's global media and homepage in video businesses and product groups um, from 2012 to 2014. And then I actually got introduced to Jesse and Peter uh, probably not, not too long after Peter and Jesse started the Churning Group. Actually, it was right around 2010, 2011 when Jesse and I first met, introduced by Jeff Morad, uh, who was my old boss and, and was an investor in my startup. And we, Jesse and I you know, kind of hit it off straight away. I spent a bunch of time getting to know Peter um, and, you know, ended up joining them in the beginning of 2015 and now have been, you know, been with TCG for about six years. I'm curious about the structure of, of TCG and the churning group overall. So Jesse, you and Peter founded the firm in 2010. You've made investments in media and technology companies. There's also a churn in entertainment, which is a production company. And then there's the fund that you closed back in November 2019. 
Can you explain how these various entities are all related to each other? Well, uh, A, we don't have enough time to go through that. And B, it'll be incredibly boring for your listeners. And so I'll try to simplify it. We have, we have two things. We have an investment business. And we have separately, there's a film and television production business that Peter owns a significant majority of. Um, Mike and I have effectively spent all of our time on the investment business. And I, I you know, the, the, the fund, um, we're now on our, we're just finishing our second fund and we're about to, to raise our third fund. Um, but for simplicity purposes, I would assume Churnin Entertainment makes movies and TV shows and the Churnin Group is our investment vehicle. And be, beyond that, it'll get super boring. Fair enough. So, Mike, you mentioned that you co-founded and were CEO of Citizen Sports before getting acquired by Yahoo. And then you became SVP of the product homepage uh, and, and you know global media. You know, obviously, that comes with a lot of operating experience and, and really building these businesses up. Now, as you're operating from an investor perspective, how do you? take that experience that you have and help the various portfolio companies succeed without going too far to step on their toes. It must be a fine line. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a critically important fine line. Jacob, I, I always tell, um, entrepreneurs, honestly, I try to do it in the first meeting because even though we like to pride ourselves on being, you know, former operators, the truth is, um, I think it's valuable to have operated and, and been an entrepreneur uh, in the sense that we can, you know, hopefully better relate and better empathize with the journey that these operators and founders and executives are going through. But we are very clear about the fact that we we understand that there is a there is a very clean, clear and distinct line between operators and investors, and for regardless of how much of the company we own, regardless of our past experiences, we are, um, you know, we're in the business of giving advice and giving, um, you know, hopefully helpful uh, input when called upon. Um, you know, my, 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 the main investor in my old startup uh, who had, you know, was a legendary or is it still a legendary investor himself uh, asked me when I called him, you know, asking for his advice about joining TCG, he said, are you ready to be an influencer and not a decider? And uh, ultimately, if the answer is yes, then, you know, then you're ready to take the leap and join Peter and Jesse. So I think that probably summarizes it better than any other, you know, kind of anecdote uh, I or we could share because, you know, we, we take our role very seriously as trying to be helpful and I know it sounds corny and there's all kind of VC memes about, you know, being helpful, but we really mean it. And at the end of the day, there's countless times where entrepreneurs and operators of companies that, you know, again, will we'll be the majority shareholder often will we'll make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with. We'll let them know we, we might not agree with it, but we'll ultimately support the decisions that, that they're making, um, you know, because at the end of the day, they're, they're running and driving the business day to day. So you could argue that there is a very clear thesis that TCG has, or at least I could argue that, but perhaps the listeners don't quite uh, understand that yet. Can you talk about what that thesis is and how you're looking at companies? Why don't we start with you, Jesse, and then Mike, you can follow up. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think the the, the main uh, thing that we've we've done this now for ten or eleven years is we have a thesis that you know the 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 fascinating thing about the internet and digital is it's just an unlimited amount of real estate, right? You can there's no limit to the number of websites, there's no limit to the number of apps, there's no limit to the number of companies. You know, it's not like I don't know the radio or TV business historically or the real estate business where there's there's a limit, right? You can't build just an unlimited number of TV networks uh, over time. I mean, you couldn't build an unlimited amount of real estate. Uh, so given the fact that there is that unlimited space out there, our belief is that, you know, we are looking for the brands and the companies that people really care about, you know, that people really self-identify with. So, you know, if I ask you who you are, you say, I'm Jacob Donnelly, I'm X years old, I live wherever you live. And three things I care about are media operator, you know, I don't know, the New York Giants and something else, right? We want to be on that list of things you care about. We want to be on the list of things. We want the companies we invest in to be on that list. We want people to wear their t-shirts. We want people to, you know, adopt that brand. Um, and we don't care what it's in. In the years it's been in anime, food, watches, uh, baseball cards, surfing, uh, it could be in anything, right? Um, but as long as we see that there is a brand, and often we find that that brand is sort of, it, it's an accidental company, right? It was started by, when you look at a lot of the founders of Ben Clymer at Hodinkee and Dave Portnoy at Barstool, um, and the two founders of Food 52 and the founders of Surfline, like they, these are labors of love and their passions, right? And they start these businesses, and I put businesses a little bit in air quotes, um, that you know, because this is what they love to do. And this is what they think the community that they're a part of needs. And over time, they find like five or seven years into it, wow, this is actually like turning into a company. And has, you know, we haven't spent any money, often these companies have spent zero money on marketing, right? So the people that are showing up to Barstool, to Crunchyroll, to Headspace in the early days, to Hodinkee, to Food52, to Meat Eater, to Golden Auctions, to Surfline, all of these companies, they're doing it originally because of the content, right? And over time, they're starting to demonstrate their passion for that brand by buying something, buying a cutting board for the kitchen, buying a watch, buying a t-shirt from Barstool. And that ability to tie content to commerce in that way, we think is incredibly powerful. And I, you know, I think if we, um, without having to spend a lot, if, if frankly, if any money on marketing, and sort of that playbook, which we've now rolled out many times, we think is something that, you know, is, is that we're passionate about and is what we look for over and over again. So then let's dig in a little bit to some of these, some of these companies and let's look at the past six months because it's actually been pretty busy for you guys. First, there was Hodinkee, which was, you know, which was pretty cool because I actually had been on the show uh, back in the fall. Um, then there was Surfline. Then Hodinkee expanded with the acquisition of Crown and & Caliber, and then two investments in quick succession with Golden Auctions, and you guys also invested in Collector's Universe, which grades collectibles and also increased the price of card submissions today. Um, so let's first talk about Crown and & Caliber, Hodinkee and Crown and & Caliber. Both of these make sense from that thesis of content driving to commerce, and they look similar as, uh, as other investments such as Meat Eater, Food52, you mentioned Barstool's. But Golden and Collector's Universe are not content-driven. Can you talk about that and how these com these newer investments might be a deviation from the original thesis? Yeah. Uh, so we don't actually look at them as deviations. So you know, we started – the other thing we do at TCG is we're extremely uh, 
thesis driven in how we invest. So about nine or 10 months ago, you know, we started paying a lot of attention to, to cards and collectibles, right? There was, we just noticed in, in our community online, um, among influencers, we just noticed increasingly people were interested in talking about cards and collectibles, buying and selling, et cetera. And we then did some quantitative work to look at, you know, if we could verify that, like how much is this actually growing and look at some stats that we can get on eBay or online. And then we assign a team um, of people internally at TCG to go extremely deep into that vertical or into that niche. And we canvassed the landscape and look at, I mean, I think you and I talked about this months ago, Jacob. Uh, I think I, I hit you up and asked you about it. Um, we ask everyone we know, are you into it? If you are, what brands are you going to? What individuals, what podcasts are you listening to? What companies are you buying from? And, you know, this was during COVID and 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 we had people even on our team, you know, uh, safely flying across the country, visiting the companies that we thought were most interesting. Um, and we stumbled upon Golden Auctions, which is the leading auction uh, online site online for 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 buying and selling um, uh, cards and collectibles, sports cards and collectibles, but but broader, um, you know, Pokemon cards, etc. And uh, I actually think it is a content of commerce. I mean, this was started by one guy, Ken Golden. He's been in the hobby since he was 12 years old. Um, you know, he is he is he knows more about cards than anybody else. He has more relationships, and he's built up really a top of the funnel on both the supply side and the demand side, just based on his knowledge, his voice, his influence, et cetera. And he's turned it into a really impressive business that was growing very fast. Um, at the same time, you know, completely separately, we we Collectors Universe, uh, which is the leading, you know, owns PSA, which is a, the leading company that grades cards and collectibles. Um, you know, we also thought was an interesting opportunity. So those were two discrete and distinct investments that we made that were all driven off of that particular thesis around cards and collectibles. Yeah, I mean, the only a couple of things I'd add, Jacob, about cards. Um, you know, although you would go to Golden and you wouldn't think it's media, I think that's fair. I mean, it's they don't do a ton or all that much content. Conversely, you go on YouTube, you go on Twitter. You go on Reddit, um, you know, there are, there are thousands of people, um, you know, both talking about, right. So kind of distributed to few, you know, communities and, uh, sharing and more and more kind of publishing about the coverage of cards, collectibles, et cetera. And, you know, we've probably gotten a dozen, a dozen plus pitches, in the last six months about, you know, seed stage venture backed companies that were going to reimagine the, the, the kind of consumer experience and media experience around unboxing of cards. And we said, look, what better place to start the, the, you know, kind of reimagination of the consumer experience of cards and collectibles than on a, a platform like Golden which has uh, such strong history of supply and relationships with athletes and deep uh, relationships with a lot of the major collectors in the space that we thought, you know, with, with, you know, Ross Hoffman joining and, you know, Ross has already made some key hires in consumer product 
uh, and, and digital media, I think it's fair to assume that a core part of our hypothesis will be that we will bring world-class consumer product and uh, live media experiences to collectibles in a way that, um, you know, again, many startups are going to try to skate uh, to that same vision, but we, we think we're skating from a, a, a position of strength and starting from a position of strength with the foundation that, that Golden provides day one. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about action networks um, or more broadly a, a, a curiosity I have. So this, if I'm correct, was created a few years ago by merging a few different brands that you had acquired into one uh, major brand. Have you ever considered identifying new niches and trying to start companies from the ground up, or is it always better for where you guys are to just acquire them as you find them? I think I think the ideal is is kind of a, a bit of a hybrid, Jacob. I mean, we're actually going through it right now um, in in a couple of different categories where we think that there's really interesting um, opportunity. We think there's a really interesting opportunity. We don't believe that that opportunity exists or we're confident it's not out there right now. Um, and we would love to potentially, you know, acquire stakes or majority stakes in some companies to put them together. Um, and the hardest part of the puzzle is finding the person who is going to, you know, kind of ultimately run these businesses. Uh, and, and, and it has to be someone that the other entrepreneurs are all excited about uh, working, you know, with slash four. Um, and it has to be someone who shares the vision that we have and has enough credibility and um, experience managing scale to, to go after the opportunity together with. Um, so that, that's, that's a, a challenging part of, you know, kind of the quote unquote roll up because, unless there's something, you know, that's at scale as a starting point, you have to put several things together to start something. That's what we had to do with action network. Um, so that, 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 that's both the opportunity, but the challenge at the same time. So it's interesting that, you know, I've written about this many times. I obviously take a pretty negative, uh, I have pretty negative opinion about venture and media, and yet, I've really never been able to write anything negative about you guys because so far it doesn't appear as if you guys make too many of the same errors that other VCs have made in media. Why have so many VCs screwed up when it comes to investing in media? I, I think I, I mean, I'll start, Jesse. And Jeff. I, mean, I think rather than talk about what they've done wrong, it's probably good to go back to what we like to focus on, right? Which are generally, if you look at our investments, Jacob, there's two, there's two kinds of investments, right? There's minority stake, what I'll call venture businesses. Um, and we're typically investing at the growth stage of those companies. Although uh, in the past, we had done more early stage investing, but we've, we've stopped doing that for the most part uh, on the venture side of the house. And then on the, the majority stake type businesses, are often more of the quote unquote media, right? The meat eater, the food 52, the bar stool, the actions. Um, uh, and those businesses um, tend to be, we believe, tend to be most successful 
when you run them in a capital efficient way, i.e., you know, don't burn a lot of cash. <laughs> and, um, you know, they also tend to be non-advertising based um, and they tend to not rely on nor in many cases spend on customer acquisition, right? They rely on their content and the investment in the content to be the tool for customer acquisition. Many of the businesses that haven't done as well from, from an investment perspective in quote unquote media, uh, burnt too much cash, raised too much capital, re- too reliant on advertising, um, and, and ultimately spent a lot of money acquiring customers at, at some point in their history. And the combination's a recipe for disaster. Uh, and, and even one or more of those things will generally not work out well. You know, we often say, if you look at the logos on the majority stake side of our investing, um, most of those companies have been around a decade plus, right? Barstool, Food52, um, Surfline, um, Hodinkee, um, you know, these businesses, you know, it's, it's, and you've written about this, Jacob, it's hard to create brands that have real organic audiences of subsidized size um, by, uh, by a flash in the pan strategy of a new distribution or new customer acquisition. They tend to be built, you know, to use a, a barstoolism brick by brick. And um, we both like those businesses because they're enduring and they have built in audiences to provide a foundation from. Um, and by definition, they haven't burnt a ton of capital to get to that point. So they've been run capital efficiently. And when we invest, we try to not screw it up and try to maintain that discipline around capital efficiency. Yeah, I would, you know, the, I think that's, uh, that's well said. I think the other things I'd add, um, we'll never do, you know, over the years, we've had so many people come in and say, well, the food network is big on TV. So there should be a food network for digital or travel is big so on TV or in print. So there should be a travel uh, brand just based on sort of their their uh, market analysis that doesn't you know that rarely if ever works um, you know I think for us it is it is things that the I mean w- one of the company CEOs that we just uh, recently invested in over the last year we we're talking to him about how he communicates internally uh, with his with his staff and somebody said hey you should consider using Slack he said well, what is Slack. Right. And and other ones, you know, somebody said, Hey, have you, did did you go and, you know, to Sand Hill Road and meet with Sequoia Excel and Dreesen? I said, I I don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking a different language. Like literally, they don't know what those companies and and firms are. Um, You know, we have one firm we're working, company we're working with right now. Uh, Like the the whole notion, they have no clue what an advisor or investment bank would do. I mean, it's just, these are just, these are really people who are were in the true sense of entrepreneurs, right? Um, so I think that's one thing that really differentiates the way we look at it. One of the other things that's been interesting, and because you both invest in companies, I'm curious your thoughts. There's been a ton of ink spilled about the recent interest in SPACs as a means of acquiring companies. By and large, though, in the media space, there has not actually been a lot of acquisitions made, just a lot of money raised. Is this a lot of noise, in your opinion, or do you think that there are good opportunities? Yeah, I, uh, 
Look, I think a SPAC is just another way of going public, right? So ultimately, if you ask me the question or ask us the question, will there be media companies um, that should go public over the next two to three years? The answer is yes. Um, Might the SPAC craze result in too many of them trying to do so? Potentially. But all, all a SPAC is, is an alternative to doing an IPO or a direct listing. So I think if there are companies out there that otherwise would have thought of going public, a SPAC is an interesting alternative to a regular way IPO. I want to ask another operating question. An old CEO of mine, when we were talking about doing some M&A work, and it never actually went through, said that mergers and acquisitions are one of the hardest things to get right, and most of them fail. You guys have both invested in companies, but then also bought other companies to incorporate into the larger ones, such as Crown and Caliber as becoming part of Hodinkee. What is what is the strategy and the operating plan to ensure that M&A doesn't fail? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, look, I think we can answer it from a couple dimensions. Um, you know, all, all three of us, Jacob, have spent a lot of time in our pre-TCG careers um, both buying and selling businesses, um, you know, from different perspectives. So we, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on this topic. Um, and now interestingly, you know, we are both in some cases a buyer to your point about crown and caliber, you know, with meat eater and first light, you know, many other examples. Um, and we're sellers, right. And we, we obviously we sold, um, you know, a big business to AT&T several years ago. We, we obviously sold Barstool um, about a year, right about a year ago, exactly to Penn National and, and, and others. Um, you know, I, I think that on the buy side, um, it, it probably is the same truism for the sell side, which is um, you want to buy a business that on its own has both a strong foundation and a lot of opportunities that you can identify for ongoing growth independent of quote unquote synergies or, you know, the strategic rationale behind the acquisitions. And, you know, I think in both Crown and Caliber and First Light, which are two instances that come to mind, you know, both of those businesses, I remember looking at what we believed about Crown and Caliber, what we believed about First Light independent of how Hodinkee and uh, Meat Eater respectively could help those businesses. And we, we had a lot of conviction in them as standalone opportunities and businesses. Um, and I think similarly, you're seeing with Crunchyroll, you know, it's been report, it's obviously public that they continue to thrive within AT&T um, in the now, what has been about three years since they sold to AT&T. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's, 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 it's no, you know, secret that Barstool has both had a huge impact on Penn National's core business, but the core business of Barstool, independent of the Barstool Sportsbook, which is now live in just two states, um, has thrived through COVID and as a standalone entity. And it's, it, it looks like just the core Barstool business, independent of the strategic benefit and rationale to Penn National, will be a great investment and a great acquisition by Penn National. And as a as a seller. You know, I think we are proud of the fact that our businesses post churning group uh, involvement have continued to uh, thrive and succeed. And hopefully businesses that get acquired into the churning group 
you know, we, we, we don't screw up by uh, making sure we recognize what the strengths are independent of the, the um, integrated strategy and plan, but then have enough resources in place and in, in an alignment between the leadership to make sure that they're going to go after the strategic synergies to capture all the upside value that we all are, are banking on. Yeah. The only thing I'd add is when we do our deals and we acquire a majority stake or a meaningful minority stake in a business, um, you know, we're, it's always a separate cap table. Everyone in the company or those, you know, the, the, there's an equity plan that incents uh, the executives and the team at these portfolio companies. And we've often gotten the question over the years, well, why don't you create one holding company and have, you know, common um, back office and have one CEO and different brand managers? And the answer is like, look, if you're running Hodinkee um, or you're working at Hodinkee or you're working at Surfline or you're working at Meat Eater, you want to have equity tied to the performance of those individual brands. And, you know, given how competitive it is out there to, to hire, to recruit and retain talent, it's just incredibly important to have incentives that are aligned. And I think, you know, it goes wrong when you try to create these sort of complicated structures where everyone rolls into one big entity. It's, it's why historically large companies have been challenged to foster innovation because they can't give, you know, people the right incentives. So that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and, and ensuring that our, our management teams um, are appropriately incented. Looking forward, what are some trends in media and or technology that have you most excited? Well, I'll start with one which picks up on something that we were talking about before, and then I'll let Mike take the more digital <laughs> part of it. But what's going on in the collectible space is, is really fascinating. And, um, you know, I think it's I think we, we think it's for a few different reasons. One is um, one is pandemic driven a little bit, right? People have been at home and they're going through their old shoe boxes and, you know, their old baseball cards. Um, a second, which is quite interesting, particularly for sports cards and collectibles, is tied in a little bit to the rise of sports gambling, which is, you know, if you've seen the growth in sports gambling, it's, you know, you can go and bet on, right? Do you think the Denver Nuggets or New York Knicks or whatever, who's going to win the Super Bowl, the Chiefs or the, the Bucks, um, and a gazillion other bets, right? But but you can't bet on or speculate, I should say, on the performance of an individual player over an extended period of time. And you can do that as a fantasy GM, general manager, by doing your fantasy league. But if you have a thesis that De'Aaron Fox or LaMelo Ball or Ronald Acuna is going to be a star, Right, and Ronald Acuna is going to be the next Ken Griffey. You can now speculate on that by by purchasing his card, right? And there, and you, and and then because it's the internet, and you go down these rabbit holes of there's so many different types of cards, and which card is graded what, and you know, you just that the whole community fosters that. And then I think the third thing, and the third reason you're seeing so much of this interest is tied to. Um, you know, a little bit of sort of the macro economy just around the government printing so much money and people looking for alternative places to invest. And some of that is Bitcoin. And a lot of that is Bitcoin and crypto. And some of that is in these collectibles where people look at this as a store of value that will increase in value over time. And I think, you know, cards and collectibles, um, 
you've seen a significant increase in uh, um, antique and collectible cars. I think you're see, you're you're seeing it, and we'll continue to see it in watches, uh, in wine, um, in all these different areas. I think is is really something that's fascinating. Um, and related to that, I think we also spend a decent amount of time looking at uh, these big verticals within eBay. You know, if you look at uh, uh, sneakers and tickets and um, cars that historically were very big categories on eBay, um, where off eBay, these communities have formed, whether it's a GOAT or a StubHub or a StockX, you know, I think that whole space is quite interesting. And I'll let Mike pick up the, the digital part of it. Yeah, I, I think it, look, the, the digital part of it is, is you know, the, the topic du jour, uh, Jacob, is the NFTs, right? And, um, you know, we, we've been spending a lot of time looking at that. And, 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 and you know, some of these things won't work, some will, but the, 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 if you look at the confluence of factors behind the NFTs, they're, you know, I would say down, I would say middle of the fairway for TCG. And most, many people not, might not, you know, uh, think that, but it really is this confluence of, um, you know, passionate um, um, subjects, um, whether it be the, the top shot with sports or um, art communities or other forms of intellectual property that will continue to evolve and build around uh, these these uh, you know kind of digital collectible um, scarcity driven marketplaces combined with some of the things Jesse was talking about in terms of you know active you know this concept I remember I'll never forget graduating from school and you know our 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 tax and econ professors basically saying look all you need to do is max out your 401k and put in the index funds and rest invest and you'll be fine when you're 70 <laughs> and and live a comfortable life from 70 to death and you you think about that and now we're what is it 23 24 years later and people just don't buy that I, I think people are um, and you know whether it's the Davy Drake day trader phenomenon or you know obviously what's been real well chronicled with you know the the Wall Street bets and Reddit uh, traders. I think there is this broader movement towards more active investment slash speculation, whether it's sports betting, collectibles, crypto, what have you. I think people want to be more actively involved in investing what they understand. And I think you know the other component is like you know we have mutual friends who write and talk and, uh, uh, and are focused on this kind of creator economy, passion economy, macro trend towards everyone's becoming a creator, creator, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is something that Peter and Jesse, one of their first investments ever uh, was in full screen where they helped incubate it out of the creator program at YouTube with George Tremopoulos. And you look at our, you know, whether it's uh, been investments in Barstool or investments in um, Anchor or investments in um, you know, Twitter and Pandora. I mean, we, we as a firm have always invested in this kind of people driven media thesis and people driven, and now it's people driven everything. And I think that, um, you know, the NFTs actually are kind of at the confluence of all of these trends, which we believe in deeply. And we've been, been investing in as a firm. And, you know, the, the difference now is these things are being, you know, uh, secured and transacted through cryptocurrency on the blockchain. And that's really the difference. And we think it's potentially a, a major gateway towards consumer adoption uh, and consumer relevancy 
of of the blockchain and crypto. Um, but we're, we're certainly spending a lot of time, you know, learning and and looking for actively active investments. In it. I want to close with the same two questions that I ask every person that comes on the show. First, what is a mistake you made in your career, and what did you learn from it? And we'll start with you, Mike. Well, it's 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 a it's a funny one. Um, I, I actually almost joined TCG back in 2012 and uh, had an agreement with Jesse and Peter and went and, and resigned um, and kind of was, was countered with an offer I couldn't refuse um, and decided to stay at Yahoo for another two years. And in hindsight, um, you know, obviously I've had a great journey and experience with Peter and Jesse now for six years and it could have been eight years. And I think we would have, you know, been that much further along as a, as a partnership and, 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 and as partners. Uh, but at the time I thought I was making the right, right decision. And, and what I learned from it, I think, you know, speaks to the character uh, and the maturity of Peter and Jesse is that, you know, when I finally did leave Yahoo two years later, I called them up and I said, okay, this time I'm really out. I'm, I'm already actually out. Like, are you still interested? And, and we, you know, we obviously got back together and, and figured things out very quickly from there. And you, Jesse? Um, in my career, that, that's the question. Yeah, in your career. Yeah, yeah. I, I, okay. Uh, look, I, I think one of them that I've re- repeatedly made, and hopefully I make fewer uh, of, of this type of, or, of these types of mistakes now. You know, in, in investing, the number of times I'll give you an example. Twitch is a good example. Um, years ago, we looked at investing in Twitch. And the data was staring in front of us, right? And this was at a relatively low valuation. I, they actually had so much uh, uh, trouble raising capital that they ended up having to do some like highly structured deal. But we looked at the data, and we were very focused on the creator economy. We were very focused on video and live video. We were very focused on gaming. And the data was like nothing you've ever seen before. I mean, these are you know people around the world um, pl- on this platform for hours a day, there's a ultimately, you know, we could see a natural way for a built-in uh, tipping economy uh, in an emerging sport that's global, you know, uh, cross genders, cross races. Like this was super interesting, and we made this the terrible, terrible mistake of asking the senior executives at the large game, you know, video game companies what they thought of it, and. Back then, you know, like, was it, were they pirating their content? And it was like, these guys are going to go away. None of the content's licensed. We're going to build our own platform. And we made that mistake a few times where you ask people whose incentives are uh, not aligned with the success of the platform that you're thinking about investing in. And they're going to give you the answer that, that they want to hear or they want to happen from their incumbent position. And, um, the reality is, and I think this goes to what you know Mike was talking about before with the good example he gave around resting, investing, you know, buying index funds to a seventy versus what's happening online. Like the internet and 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 innovation and young people using technology and these trends, they they move like three years faster than big companies and and frankly and big government institutions. You know, you hear these things. Oh, they're going to sh- they shut down Bitcoin and create their own government-backed Bitcoin. It's like bananas when you hear these things. And 
So I think it's it's just listening, looking at the the data and seeing what's happening and paying attention to it, and not listening to people's who whose incumbent positions are not aligned with the outcome of where this innovation is headed. And second, what is some advice you'd give to current or prospective media operators to succeed in this business? And we'll start with you, Jesse. Yeah, I, I would say, and it's something that you have done a great job uh, espousing, Jacob, but uh, don't get caught up with raising uh, too much capital and going down sort of that you know venture or growth equity hamster wheel if you don't need to. Um, you know, and I, I would say, you look at these businesses that get overcapitalized. It's like uh, there's been many situations where I've looked at a company and said, or a founder and said, "You're going to think this is ridiculous, and that I'm clearly talking my own book." But you should not be raising at that much money at that valuation, even if you can, because you're going to get stuck, and you're going to end up hiring too many people. And it's you know your company. A lot of these companies, they sh- they're they're great outcomes where you can maintain a meaningful ownership of a company. Sell it for hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions of dollars. If you're, if that's what your 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 goal is to have some sort of financial event, um, without having to go and just raise an unnecessary amount of capital. Um, and I'd also say on that stuff, like the small things don't matter. Uh, you know, whether you're raising, is your valuation X or five percent above X or five percent below X? If you get the right partner on board and the right investor on board and the right team on board, you know, if it, if you have to stretch a little bit to hire that person. Um, but it's the right person, the small things will make a difference in the end. And you, Mike? Yeah, I, I, I think of it in two dimensions. Um, if you, you know, if you want to be huge, uh, make sure that you're building a platform where other people can make a living on your platform, right? Whether that's YouTube is obviously the most successful example in media, but there's been obviously now many others, whether it's Instagram or Twitch or, you know, potentially Clubhouse or, or what have you. Um, and, and the other type of business is more, you know, uh, like Morning Brew, right? And like, um, you know, Barstool and Food 52. And I think it goes back to that, you know, it, it, it's a grind and perseverance and daily, uh, you know, daily incrementalism, um, and, and having a culture and a focus on, you know, brick by brick is what will ultimately create the most long-term value. Um, and it's really, you know, just building success, one happy customer at a time. Um, and I think anything in the middle is, is what we like to avoid at TCG. And I think, where the trouble lies in, right? You know, be be a broad global platform or be hyper-focused on the daily grind and the perseverance and super-serving your niche. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.